Hello, and welcome to Kindred Spirits Book Club, the podcast where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables. I'm Reagan Duffy, and with me is my co-host, Kelly Gurner. Hello, Kindred Spirits. Well, in today's episode, we are going to be continuing our thematic discussion of Anne of the Island, guided by Anne's core virtues, angelically good, divinely beautiful, and in today's case, dazzlingly clever. Let's look at how Anne's intelligence and ambition shines brightly throughout this book, both in her scholastic endeavors and in her creative experiments. I love Anne of the Island's decidedly collegiate flair. I mean, when you're reading it, you can just picture the ivy-covered brick buildings and like the old-fashioned letterman sweaters and autumn leaves. So I went to a college with a gorgeous, gorgeous campus, but it was very like Californian in style, you know, mission revival architecture and like eucalyptus trees. So not exactly that East Coast Ivy League academic fantasy. In thinking about that, I'm dying to know, Reagan, what was college like for you? What were your favorite classes? And who did you think you were going to become when you were Anne's age, 19 or 20? So I I went to college in New York City. It was a small college on the Upper East Side, and it did not have any kind of traditional campus. It's literally just two buildings next to each other. So it did not look at all like I imagined Redmond College must have looked. And the year I started there, the school was trying to recruit more traditional students to both improve their academic reputation and round out their student body that was primarily returning adults and commuter students. But that suited me just fine. A traditional college campus was not necessarily high on my want list. Yeah, Um, I don't see you like lining up for the homecoming game necessarily. Right, right. That was never my kind of my style. So the dorms were just a few floors at the 92nd Street Y. And that had a lot of cool cultural programming that we could access as residents. That's honestly so cool. Like what an incredible experience. Yeah, I think uh, we saw a fair number of authors speak. and I'm sure, yeah. Lots of very interesting stuff literally right on the bottom floor. And then the sophomores and up could live in the school apartments, which were just really nice apartments in big apartment buildings. Incredible. I love the freedom of college, the bustle and the anonymity of a big city, especially because I came from a rather small town in Maryland. My school had a really big theater and dance program. So there were always shows to see for free or really cheap. And everyone knew someone who was performing in some weird off, 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 Broadway experimental (laughs) theater. Of course. (laughs) The school advertised that the city is our campus, but it was really true. Yeah. We rollerbladed in Central Park. We ate nothing but dollar slices of pizza, bagels, and diner cheesecake. We hit up museums on the free entrance days. We saw indie movies at the Angelica Movie Theater in the village. We walked miles every day to save on bus fare. And we felt very cool and adult navigating the city on our own. It was not a traditional campus experience, but it was very awesome in its own way. That sounds incredibly, incredibly cool. And how about you, Kel? What's the rundown on your college life? Well, I went to a small all-women's college in California. It was a ton of fun, just a blast from start to finish. I definitely did have sort of a more traditional campusy experience, but there was no like Greek scene. There were no super competitive sports or anything like that. It was a really great place to kind of feel out the kind of person you're going to grow up into. 
And I was on my school newspaper staff. It was a very small college. The newspaper staff was very small. There was only about a half a dozen of us that were the core people. And then we had various writers and photographers who came in on a sort of one-off basis. But despite that, we had like a decent budget and we came out weekly. So that took a ton of time and energy. And I loved those late nights in the newspaper room, getting it ready for publication. I also had an amazing journalism professor who really taught me how to listen and write well. Those are skills I still use every day in my job. And it's funny that despite all that time I spent in the newspaper room, I don't think I ever really wanted to be a journalist. (laughs) (laughs) I think I just wanted to write and talk about the important goings on around campus. I just wanted to be in the know. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like, Lady Whistledown? Literally, yes. I figured if I worked on the newspaper stuff and I would know everything that was happening before it (laughs) happened. I think I just wanted to be like the school gossip. Okay. (laughs) But I also studied music very seriously and I was able to spend a year abroad focusing on becoming an opera singer and singing opera. So I don't know, Reagan. I feel like I was really lucky to get to go to a very small liberal arts college where I had a ton of freedom and a ton of opportunity to do pretty much whatever I wanted. For like a bookish, artsy kid who wasn't totally sure what she wanted to be when she grew up, it was perfect. Oh, I love that. Let's turn our attention to Anne's college experience. For our kindred spirit of the episode, we return to an old favorite, Diana Barry. Diana, of course, is Anne's dearest friend from childhood. And at this point in the series, Anne and Diana are on two very different paths. Diana is engaged to be married when Anne of the Island begins. And she's planning for a future as a homemaker, a wife, and someday a mother. Anne, on the other hand, is focused on her intellectual and career pursuits. She intends to be able to make her own way in the world. And although they love each other dearly, they don't entirely understand the path the other is on, although they still support each other with their whole hearts. We're going to discuss how Diana's true-hearted love for Anne shows up in Anne of the Island, how her intervention helps push Anne's growth as it relates to her career, and how it's equal parts hilarious, adorable, and symbolic of the ways that Diana and Anne have grown apart. I really love that we picked Diana for this episode as our kindred spirit, because even though this book is very firmly focused on Anne's college years and Diana didn't come on that journey with her, she's still a part of Anne's growth arc in this book in a pretty significant way. Exactly. In unexpected way, Mm -hmm. but both by illustrating the different path that Anne is not taking and directly intervening in Anne's career growth. For our quote of the episode, let's take a look at Anne's view of college as she's just about to start her sophomore year. Just one more week and we go back to Redmond, said Anne. She was happy at the thought of returning to work, classes, and Redmond friends. Pleasing visions were also being woven around Patty's place. There was a warm, pleasant sense of home in the thought of it, even though she had never lived there. But the summer had been a very happy one, too. A time of glad living with summer suns and skies. A time of keen delight in wholesome things. A time of renewing and deepening of old friendships. A time in which she had learned to live more nobly, to work more patiently, to play more heartily. All life lessons are not learned at college, she thought. Life teaches them everywhere. This is a great theme for this book. Anne's growth is huge in Anne of the Island. She really comes into her own as an adult and learns to set aside some of the quirks that helped her survive her troubled childhood while still embracing the qualities that make Anne uniquely Anne. And while her school days are full of Latin and Greek and poetry, her social and emotional life is teaching her more about who she truly is 
and helping her refine her vision of who she wants to be. In our story club today, we'll be exploring Anne's academic experience and career aspirations. Anne of the Island begins with Anne Shirley, Gilbert Blythe, and Charlie Sloan getting ready to leave Avonlea for Redmond College. Going to college means they are leaving Prince Edward entirely. And in a way, their journey is also one to grow into people they could never be had they remained at home. Although Anne misses Avonlea terribly before she's even made it to Kingsport, she has resolved to take on this next stage of her life. Yes, I feel like Byron's child Harold, only it isn't really my native shore that I'm watching, said Anne, winking her gray eyes vigorously. Nova Scotia is that, I suppose, but one's native shore is the land one loves the best, and that's good old PEI for me. I can't believe I didn't always live here. Those 11 years before I came seem like a bad dream. It's seven years since I crossed on this boat, the evening Mrs. Spencer brought me over from Hope Town. I can still see myself in that dreadful old wincy dress and faded sailor hat, exploring decks and cabins with enraptured curiosity. It was a fine evening, and how those red island shores did gleam in the sunshine. Now I'm crossing the strait again. Oh, Gilbert, I do hope I'll like Redmond and Kingsport, but I'm sure I won't. Where's all your philosophy gone, Anne? It's all submerged under a great swamping wave of loneliness and homesickness. I've longed for three years to go to Redmond, and now I'm going. And I wish I weren't. But Anne's sorrow at leaving her home is tempered with excitement and enthusiasm for the intellectual challenge of the next four years. We see that Anne truly enjoys learning, learning for learning's sake, expanding her mind and discovering new things. Anne's first year at Redmond comes relatively easy for her, since she works so hard studying with Gilbert by correspondence course in the preceding two years. And as we discussed in last week's episode, she throws herself into the Redmond social scene alongside her friends, Philippa and Priscilla. By the time that Christmas rolls around, Anne is settled at Redmond, and we learn that, quote, the honor of leading in the freshman classes fluctuated between Anne, Gilbert, and Philippa. Priscilla did very well. Charlie Sloan scraped through respectably and comported himself as complacently as if he had led in everything. Of course he did. <laughs> Anne's hard work in her years before Redmond is paid off, and she is back on top academically, as much as she ever was at the Queen's Academy or in the old Avonlea schoolhouse. We know Anne thrives on competition, and even though she no longer considers Gilbert an academic rival, it's clear she will always want to do well, especially in subjects like English, where she's particularly gifted. She decides to win a scholarship in English, which will pay for her second year of college, and she does, in fact, achieve this goal. Maud tells us that, quote, Anne enjoyed it thoroughly in all its phases, the stimulating class rivalry, the making and deepening of new and helpful friendships the gay little social stunts, the doings of the various societies of which she was a member, the widening of horizons and interests. We see that Anne is energized by collegiate life. She can exercise her intelligence and ambition to their utmost potential. When we think that the alternative for Anne would have been to remain in Avonlea teaching school and fending off suitors like Billy Andrews, we know she's in exactly the right place. So here's brilliantly intelligent, dazzlingly clever Anne in all her collegiate glory, having just won a prestigious scholarship and on top of the world. And now she's back in Little Avonlea for the summer. 
Avonlea is starting to feel uncomfortably small for a young woman who has now seen a bit of the world and realizes that she's smart and talented enough to succeed outside of her hometown. Anne is reconnecting with her old friends who only talk about courtship and engagements and village gossip, whereas she has just done something remarkable and splendid, won a major award from an impressive university that none of them seem to understand. So it's in this context that Anne decides she's going to push her ambition still farther and write a short story for publication in a magazine. She confides her plan in Diana. Speaking of stories, Diana, remarked Anne in a significant confidential tone, do you know that lately I have been wondering if I could write a short story? A story that would be good enough to be published? Why, of course you could, said Diana, after she had grasped the amazing suggestion. You used to write perfectly thrilling stories years ago in our old story club. Well, I hardly meant one of those kinds of stories, smiled Anne. I've been thinking about it a little of late. But I'm almost afraid to try, for if I should fail, it would be too humiliating. I heard Priscilla say once that all Mrs. Morgan's first stories were rejected, but I'm sure yours won't be, Anne, for it's likely editors have more sense nowadays. Margaret Burton, one of the junior girls at Redmond, wrote a story last winter, and it was published in The Canadian Woman. I really do think I could write one at least as good. And will you have it published in The Canadian Woman? I might try one of the bigger magazines first. It all depends on what kind of a story I write. What is it to be about? I I don't know yet. I want to get a hold of a good plot. I believe this is very necessary from an editor's point of view. The only thing I've settled on is the heroine's name. It is to be Avril Lester. Rather pretty, don't you think? Don't mention this to anyone, Diana. I haven't told anyone but you and Mr. Harrison. He wasn't very encouraging. He said there was far too much trash written nowadays as it was, and he'd expected something better of me after a year at college. What does Mr. Harrison know about it? Demanded Diana scornfully. (laughs) Oh, she thinks a plot might be something an editor would look for. There is so many funny bits in this passage to me. Oh, it's so Bless her. Bless her. And, you know, I adore Diana's absolute faith in Anne at this moment. Diana has no doubt that Anne is going to be able to achieve this, right? She saw all of her story club stories and she's like, of course, those are good enough for magazine publication. But, you know, Diana doesn't really know how hard it is to get published, especially in a national literary magazine, which kind of seems to be what Anne is gunning for here. I mean, I'm not sure about you, Reagan, but I'm almost picturing this as Anne deciding she's going to get published in The New Yorker with her first ever magazine submission, which. Believe me, I love the confidence and I love her ambition, but we know this isn't realistic. Well, one of the things we know about Anne, of course, is that her ideals are very real for her. Mm -hmm. So, of course, when she's thinking about being a writer, she's thinking about it in this very idealistic way. She can't help but imagine the most thrilling, most exciting possible edition of Every Daydream. So, Reagan, when you were a kid reading Anne of the Island, did you have a sense of Anne's likelihood of success here? I think even as a kid, I knew that it's pretty hard to get published right away. So, of course, I wanted Anne to succeed, but I was pretty sure this was going to be a learning moment for her, not a triumphant one. Yeah. And for all of Diana's like blind faith in Anne, she sort of foreshadows that a little bit when she's telling Anne, hey, you know, even Mrs. Morgan didn't get published right off the bat. Right. So as Anne's story takes shape, she tells Diana about it and even allows Diana to name a minor character, although not without a lot of input from Anne. (laughs) Anne names the story Avril's Atonement, which is just classic. I love the drama. 
what do we think Avril is atoning for in this story? Because <laughs> it sounds like the kind of title where Anne loved the sound of the literary alliteration of it, mm-hmm. but it didn't arise organically from the story itself. She kind of crammed her story around the title. Yeah, I don't know. We don't we don't know enough about the plot of the story to know what the actual atoning is for, but I would love to hear everyone's theories. Mm-hmm. Diana asks Anne how much Anne thinks she might earn for selling this story, and Anne doesn't even answer her. The text explains that Anne, quote, was in pursuit of fame, not filthy lucre, and her literary dreams were as yet untainted by mercenary considerations. So for Anne, this is really about a public recognition of her skill and talent. Earning a living off of writing is not part of her plan at this point. And I think this is a good example of Anne's romanticism getting in the way of her reality. We are going to discuss at length how her dreams and ideals around romance stand in the way of an actual romantic connection. But here, too, Anne's high-minded ideals about art are standing in the way of actually making art and selling it in a practical way. And, you know, at this point in the book, I don't really think there's a problem with that. Artists should have the freedom to make the art they're inspired to create. And I think Anne should write the story of her dreams exactly as it appears in her vivid imagination. But while I agree with that, Anne has never seriously written in terms of aspiring to be published before. Mm, Yeah. We see that she wrote some fiction in the Avonlea Schoolhouse and, of course, the Story Club stories. But we've never seen Anne truly pursue writing and actually getting any feedback on her writing before. I'm sure her academic papers have critiques from professors, but that's very different from getting critical feedback on fiction stories. Anne has generally only showed her stories to Diana that we know of, and she might be a little bit blinded by Diana's fierce conviction that everything that Anne does is incredible. No, that's right. And and Anne probably has had accolades at school for her good writing, but that's in the context of what I imagine to be like analytical papers or, you know, right. things like that, not creative writing necessarily. And, you know, that's not necessarily something you hit out of the park the first time. The tension, of course, comes when Anne's lofty artistic vision encounters the real world. Her beta readers, Diana and Mr. Harrison, give Anne feedback that she's not really open to receiving. Diana tells Anne she likes the villain best, and she thinks that the scene where the heroine bakes a cake is out of place in the melodramatic story. Anne pushes back, and Diana steps back and accepts defeat, telling Anne that the story is perfectly lovely. Mr. Harrison, meanwhile, tells Anne to, quote, cut all those flowery passages. Anne does so very reluctantly, taking at least three rewritings to cut all but her favorite description of a sunset. Anne says, I've left out all the descriptions but the sunset. I simply couldn't let that go. It was the best of them all. It hasn't anything to do with the story, said Mr. Harrison. And you shouldn't have laid this scene among rich city people. What do you know of them? Why didn't you lay it right here in Avonlea? Changing the name, of course, or else Mrs. Rachel Lynde would probably think she was the heroine. Oh, that would never have done, protested Anne. Avonlea is the dearest place in the world, but It isn't quite romantic enough for the scene of a story. I love this ironic moment, don't you? Mm -hmm. Here's Anne saying Avonlea is not romantic enough to be in a story, when in fact, Maude has made Avonlea the setting of a terribly romantic story. Maybe even the most romantic story. In our opinion, anyway. (laughs) Yeah, in in the opinion of these podcasters. (laughs) 
Well, and I also wonder how Anne's belief that Avonlea isn't romantic enough for a story affects her own ability to see romantic love as a possibility in her life. Oh, I definitely think it's related. Anne is used to thinking about romance as something that happens to other people in other places, grand people in dramatic settings. She doesn't ever think about it as something that happens to ordinary people in ordinary settings. Therefore, she can't think of romance as related to ordinary boys, like Gilbert. Mm -hmm. Mr. Harrison actually points out that Anne's characters don't talk like real people and says, quote, they talk too much and use too high-flown language. There's one place where that Dalrymple chap talks even on for two pages and never lets the girl get a word in edgewise. If he'd done that in real life, she'd have pitched him. <laughs> she'd have pitched him. <laughs> Anne is absolutely mortified by that. Talking about her heroine pitching, pitching her suitor. Her and Anne, of course, has fallen prey to the common writer's fallacy of falling in love with her writing. And she has not yet heard that phrase, kill your darlings, that common advice given to writers and attributed to Diverse as authors as William Faulkner, Allen Ginsberg, Eudora Welty, Oscar Wilde, and even Stephen King. I actually read an article about this very phrase, and the first recorded example of the phrase is from Arthur Quiller Couch, who spread it in his widely reprinted Cambridge Lectures in 1914. So, yes, definitely after a little after Anne's time. Mm -hmm. He said, if you here require a practical rule of me, I will present you with this. Whenever you feel an impulse to perpetrate a piece of exceptionally fine writing, obey it wholeheartedly and delete it before sending your manuscript to press. Murder your darlings. It's such hard advice. You really do fall in love with everything you think is beautiful or clever. You're sure no one has ever turned a phrase as well as you just did. And then that inevitably is the thing that's going to sink your ship. So Anne defends every comma and period in her story and only reluctantly trims back some of the flowery passages. Part of being a writer is learning how to take critique and learn from it while still holding on to your creative vision. And Anne hasn't had a lot of experience with that part of writing yet. While Anne tries to keep her hopes realistic, she spends the weeks after she sends off her manuscript dreaming of surprising Marilla with being a published author. She has this whole fantasy that one day she'll just put a magazine in front of Marilla's face and Marilla will see her name written there in black and white and be so overcome with pride. So, of course, unfortunately, when Anne is rejected, she glumly cuts out that last sunset and she tries again with a smaller magazine. The second rejection from this manuscript is too much for Anne. She decides she'll never write again, locking the manuscript away with her story club efforts. Diana is fierce in her loyalty to Anne and declares she'll cancel her subscription to Canadian Woman in Protest, imploring Anne to keep writing. Anne is steadfast in declaring she'll never be a writer. <laughs> I guess she hasn't learned about growth mindset just yet. <laughs> Mr. Harrison gives her excellent advice, though. I wouldn't give up altogether, said Mr. Harrison reflectively. I'd write a story once in a while, but I wouldn't pester editors with it. I'd write of people in places like I knew, and I'd make my characters talk everyday English, and I'd let the sun rise and set in the usual quiet way without much fuss over the fact. If I had to have villains at all, I'd give them a chance, Anne. I'd give them a chance. There are some terrible bad men in the world, I suppose, but you'd have to go a long piece to find them. Though Mrs. Lynde believes we're all bad. But most of us have got a little decency somewhere in us. Keep on writing, Anne. 
Of course, then he tells her that once she's finished with Redmond, Anne should probably turn her attention to, quote, getting a husband, <laughs> adding further insult to injury. Oh, poor Anne. <laughs> I know. But, you know, his advice about writing is pretty great. And it makes me wonder if this is Maud's own advice about writing to her readers, or perhaps advice that she once received as a young writer herself. Certainly in Maud's writing, we see that she writes of the people and places she knows, and she believes in redemption arcs. She does love her descriptive passages, though, although I wonder how many of her darlings she killed before the final editions we now are reading. I can't imagine the number of sunsets she must have had to cut. I know. <laughs> Considering how many made it in. How many made it in, exactly. <laughs> Anne discards her literary ambitions and begins looking forward to another year at Redmond and setting up Patty's place with her friends. A week before she is ready to leave, Diana comes over with a letter. The letter informs Anne that Avril's atonement has been selected for a prize and will be published in newspapers across Canada. Great news, right? Except that the prize is awarded by the Rollings Reliable Baking Powder Company and the publication of the story is an ad for baking powder. <laughs> and it's never not funny. It's never, it's never not, funny. not funny. It's funny every time. <laughs> Anne is absolutely dumbstruck. Not only did she not enter this competition, she even told Mr. Harrison she would never enter into such a mercenary scheme. Oh, it Anne. <laughs> it would be as bad as Judson Parker painting drugstore advertisements on his fence, she said. And we all know how strongly she felt about Mr. Parker's fences in Anne of Avonlea. Diana, darling, true blue Diana is, of course, responsible. Diana submitted the story after adding some choice phrases about baking powder. It's so funny. Truly, truly. Here we have Anne's masterpiece, Avril's Atonement, which I think we can all agree is most likely as overwrought and melodramatic as it gets. So much so, Diana had previously noted how out of place it was that the heroine Avril should ever do something as simple and domestic as bake a cake. Right. But of course, that's the exact scene Diana alters, noting that Avril used Rowling's reliable baking powder in the cake to excellent effect. You know, a normal thing that you would point out in a story called Avril's Atonement. Diana, bless her heart, also changed the ending. You know where Percival clasps Avril in his arms and says, sweetheart, the beautiful coming years will bring us the fulfillment of our home of dreams. I added, in which we will never use any baking powder except Rowling's Reliable. Goodness. It's so funny. There's even something about the name Rowling's Reliable that I think just makes it extra hilarious. I, I don't know. The whole thing. So this week, let me tell you, my daughter Alice and I were listening to the Anne of the Island recap. She has mm -hmm. never read the book, so she was listening to the episode with me. Got it. And it got to this very scene where we're talking about it, and she also absolutely cracked up. It is truly one of the funniest Anne moments that happens in her adult life. No, it's 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 a great moment. Oh, thank goodness. Thank it. Thank goodness for Diana. Thank goodness for Rowling's Reliable. <laughs> <laughs> and I do love that despite Anne's immediate deep humiliation, she never lets on to Diana that she is less than pleased about this turn of events. Oh, yeah. 
she says to Diana, of course, I couldn't be anything but pleased over your unselfish wish to give me pleasure. She's trying so hard to embrace the spirit of what Diana did for her. She continues, I think you are the sweetest and truest friend in the world, Diana, she said with a little tremble in her voice. And I assure you, I appreciate the motive of what you've done. Oh, Anne, she gets points. She gets points for keeping it together. She really does. And this exact moment is why we chose Diana as the episode's kindred spirit. Diana doesn't truly understand Anne's literary endeavors, but she supports her so wholeheartedly and wants nothing more than to see Anne's career aspirations come true. Oh, we love you, Diana. After Diana leaves, Anne throws herself on her bed and cries tears of shame and outrage. When Gilbert comes over to congratulate her, Anne tells him the truth of how she feels, expecting her fellow college student to understand her emotions. I feel as if I were disgraced forever. What do you think a mother would feel like if she found her child tattooed over with a baking powder advertisement? I feel just the same. I loved my poor little story and I wrote it out of the best that was in me. It is sacrilege to have it degraded to the level of a baking powder advertisement. Oh gosh, Anne. She goes on to elaborate. And I think this here is the crux of Anne's emotion at this moment. Don't you remember what Professor Hamilton used to tell us in the literature class at Queen's? He said, we were never to write a word for a low or unworthy motive, but always to cling to the very highest ideals. You know, a statement like that would have resonated like a bell with 15-year-old Anne. Mm -hmm. And you know that she has been carrying it around in her heart and she hears it every time she takes her pen in hand. Mm -hmm. On top of that, Anne is sure that if the word gets out at Redmond, everyone will laugh about it. Gilbert is far more pragmatic and assures her, the Reds will think just as I thought that you, being like nine out of 10 of us, not overburdened with worldly wealth, had taken this way of earning an honest penny to help yourself through the year. I don't see that there's anything low or unworthy about that or anything ridiculous either. One would rather write masterpieces of literature, no doubt. But meanwhile, board and tuition fees have to be paid. Oh, Gilbert. I love that perspective. Anne is only a little consoled by this. Relieved of the dread of being laughed at, but still nursing the deeper hurt of having her ideals smashed just a little bit. And this is always Anne's overarching theme, how to have aspirational ideals and live them sincerely while also being realistic and grounded. We don't want Anne to give up all her ideals. We just want her to come to a place where she can have both grand aspirations and also joy in the real world. It's so true. And, you know, while the Avril's atonement scenes are hilarious and so memorable, I mean, seriously, you guys, search Rollings Reliable on Etsy for so much funny fan-made merch. You can get shirts and book bags and stickers. I mean, sky's the limit. But, you know, this moment is also teaching Anne that important lesson about grounding your ideals, even if it's teaching her in a way that feels really painful for her. But Reagan, okay. Do you think that if Anne had written Avril's Atonement and it went the way she hoped, if it was published and celebrated and she saw her name printed in a national magazine, do you think that version of Anne would have later been able to know herself well enough to know that Roy wasn't right for her? Because I speculate that that version of Anne might have gone on and married him after all, believing still so powerfully in her romantic ideals over all else. She almost had to suffer this humiliating setback to realize that real life isn't 
Avril's atonement levels of perfection. I think you're right. This is very clearly a part of Anne's process, a part of resetting her ideals, not settling or throwing her ideals away the way that Anne fears, but a resetting that includes romance and art in more ordinary settings and with ordinary people. During Anne's next year at Redmond, we don't hear very much about her academic or career aspirations. She's still working very hard in all her classes, but relieved of the pressures of having to win scholarships due to Miss Josephine Berry's generosity to Anne and her will. There are fewer opportunities for sophomores to earn scholarships anyway, so it's a handy piece of luck that Miss Berry has remembered Anne in this way. Anne's focus in this middle section of the book has more to do with her maturing relationships, her life at Patty's place, her friendships with Philippa, Stella, and Priscilla, and her thwarted relationship with Gilbert. Anne also discovers her roots in Bolingbroke and reconnects with her family and friends on Prince Edward Island, finding even more so that Avonlea no longer seems to fit the cosmopolitan and worldly young woman that she's become. By her junior year, Anne is every ounce the Redmond girl, with a full schedule of classes, dates to the football games, and assured of her place in the world. Maud tells us that Anne's, quote, existence at Patty's place was the same pleasant round of work and study and recreation that it had always been. On Friday evenings, the big fire-lighted living room was crowded by callers and echoed to endless jest and laughter, while Aunt Jamesina smiled beamingly on them all. Anne meets Royal Gardner that fall, whose first words to her are, and you are the Miss Shirley who read the Tennyson paper at the Philomathic the other evening, aren't you? Showing that Anne has made a name for herself academically. Reagan, can I just say that even though Roy is boring, and of course we must hate him if we are to be on Team Gilbert, hashtag Team Gilbert forever, I, lo <laughs> I really love that the first thing Roy associates with Anne is her intelligence and her scholarly skill. I think I'd probably swoon a bit, too, if an incredibly good-looking person told me they knew of me because of something smart I'd done. So points to Roy for seeing Anne's brilliant mind. Definitely points to Roy. After the Avril's Atonement incident, Anne tells Mr. Harrison that she won't try to write again and instead will stick to what she does well, teaching. And sure enough, the summer between her junior and senior years at Redmond, she agrees to teach a summer term at a school in Valley Road. Interestingly, Maud tells us absolutely nothing about Anne's work as a school teacher that summer. We learn a lot about Anne's involvement in a long-thwarted romance, but nothing at all about her pupils or lessons or any of the little vignettes in the schoolhouse that made Anne of Avonlea so charming. I think this is quite purposeful. At this point in the book, teaching doesn't challenge Anne. She isn't growing when she's teaching at a village school. She already knows how to do it. There's nothing left for her to achieve. It's a hint to the reader that Anne's future isn't going to be as a teacher, no matter what she tells Mr. Harrison. Senior year at Redmond begins, reuniting Anne, Stella, Priscilla, and Philippa at Patty's place under Aunt Jamesina's watchful eye. Maud tells us that, quote, after the first week, the girls of Patty's place settled down to a steady grind of study. For this was their last year at Redmond, and graduation honors must be fought for persistently. Anne devoted herself to English, Priscilla poured over classics, and Philippa pounded away at mathematics. Sometimes they grew tired, sometimes they felt discouraged, sometimes nothing seemed worth the struggle for it. This is where college really starts to feel like a marathon, right? The end is in sight and you're in that very last hard push. I remember writing my senior thesis in college and it was just like scraping the last... <laughs> bits of energy I had to get that done. And so to rest their tired brains and cheer themselves up, Anne and Stella have a few laughs, 
over Anne's old story club tales, which Anne says are so drenched in tears and tragedy that they are excruciatingly funny. And while she's digging through her trunk, Anne also finds the little flower garden sketch she wrote a few years back, and she resolves to make something of it. I love that she is seeing her creativity bloom again. And sure enough, Anne's resurrected ambitions are rewarded, and the piece is accepted in a children's magazine, and Anne is paid $10. And thinking back to Mr. Harrison's very good writing advice, it sort of seems like Anne half took his advice and half trusted herself. Anne stayed true to her own whimsical nature, writing about a conversation between flowers and a garden, but overall it's still a simple close-to-home kind of story, not full of grand locations and elegant people. That's exactly how we want Anne to grow in respect to her ideals, bringing them down into her reality, not as a matter of settling, but as a matter of finding authenticity in her experience, dreaming and setting high expectations of herself and others, and also leaning into who she truly is and where she truly is in life. Just as with teaching, she had to go from high-minded theories to finding her own style of teaching that included mistakes, that included recognizing her students as individuals, that included teaching from the heart and by example and striving to grow, but celebrating the small victories. Here, she's staying true to her whimsical, dreamy spirit, but keeping her writing grounded in what she knows, her love of the natural beauty of Prince Edward Island. She's made Mr. Harrison's advice her own and found that without trying to copy the dramatic romantic poets or authors she idolizes, her authentic writer self begins to emerge. Yeah, I, I love this moment. It's a beautiful, like, full circle growth moment. And the women of Patty's Place, of course, celebrate her success. Think of having a real live author at Patty's Place, said Priscilla. It's a great responsibility said Aunt Jamesina solemnly. Indeed it is, agreed Pris with equal solemnity. Authors are kittle cattle. You never know when or how they will break out and may make copy of us. I meant that the ability to write for the press was a great responsibility, said Aunt Jamesina severely. And I hope Anne realizes it. My daughter used to write stories before she went to the foreign field, but now she has turned her attention to higher things. She used to say her motto was, never write a line you would be ashamed to read at your own funeral. You'd better take that for yours, Anne, if you are going to embark in literature. Though, to be sure, added Aunt Jamesina perplexedly, Elizabeth always used to laugh when she said it. She always laughed so much, I didn't know how she ever came to decide on being a missionary. I'm thankful she did. I prayed she might, but I wish she hadn't. <laughs> then Aunt Jamesina wondered why those giddy girls all laughed. <laughs> Regan, I love everything about Patty's Place. <laughs> you can just tell there is so much genuine warmth and camaraderie, and they all really cheer each other on. As the end of the year approaches, Aunt Jimsy asks the girls, have you learned anything at Redmond except dead languages and geometry and such trash? <laughs> she just cuts right to it. Oh, yes, I think we have, Auntie, protested Anne. We've learned the truth of what Professor Woodley told us last philomathic, said Phil. He said, humor is the spiciest condiment in the feast of existence. Laugh at your mistakes, but learn from them. Joke over your troubles, but gather strength from them. Make a jest of your difficulties, but overcome them. Isn't that worth learning, Aunt Jimsy? Yes, it is, dearie. When you've learned to laugh at things that should be laughed at and not laugh at those that shouldn't, you've got wisdom and understanding. What have you got out of your Redmond course, Anne? murmured Priscilla aside. I think, said Anne slowly, that I really have learned to look upon each little hindrance as a jest and each great one as a foreshadowing of victory. Summing up, 
I think that is what Redmond has given me. I shall have to fall back on another Professor Woodley quotation to express what it has done for me, said Priscilla. You remember that he said in his address, there is so much in the world for us all if we only have the eyes to see it and the heart to love it and the hand to gather it to ourselves. So much in men and women, so much in art and literature, so much everywhere in which to delight and for which to be thankful. Judging from what you all say, remarked Aunt Jamesina, the sum and substance is that you can learn If you've got natural gumption enough, in four years at college, what would take about 20 years of living to teach you? Well, that justifies higher education, in my opinion. It's a matter I was always dubious about before. (laughs) I love that. The girls are able to come up with enough pithy quotations about sort of life lessons to... uh... To justify higher education to Aunt Jimsy. I am quite impressed by Professor Woodley, who had so many good things to say that the girls remember them quote for quote. I I know. Don't know if I can remember anything any of my college professors said. Quote for quote. No. I mean, what were they doing? Taking notes of, you know, his speeches as he was saying them? Perhaps. I don't know. All right. So shout out to Professor Woodley, I guess. So before we wrap up Anne and her ambitions, let's take another look at Diana. Well, Anne has been off at school, getting this fabulous education, writing stories, winning awards, teaching school, gallivanting about with dear friends and beaux and seeing more of the world. Diana has been at home in Avonlea on her own parallel journey to her own next chapter. Diana is engaged to Fred when the book begins, and they get married the summer before Anne's senior year in a perfect little Avonlea wedding. By the time Anne graduates and comes home, Diana has become a mother. And Anne has that bittersweet moment of feeling happy for her friend, but also terribly lonely that their paths are so different in that moment. Diana's past four years could not have been more different from Anne's. But Anne sees in her friend a love and contentment with her life that Anne isn't feeling at that particular time. And it's not because Anne regrets college. Of course, higher education was the right path for creative, intelligent, curious Anne. But it hasn't led her to this moment of serene certainty that Diana is experiencing. So once again, Anne is given this little nudge from the universe to reconcile her ideals and ambition with an honest appraisal of what she needs or who she needs to be happy. And we will talk all about that in our next episode. Please join me on a ramble down the Birch Path to discuss women in higher education. I don't know about you, Reagan, but when I read Anne of the Island as a kid, there was nothing spectacular about Anne going to college. That seemed like a totally normal thing for a girl to do. What did you make of her attending college? Right. Like you, I didn't appreciate the historical nature of Anne's college attendance. It was pretty much taken for granted in my home and among my peers that we would all be attending some form of higher education, most aspiring to at least a bachelor's degree. I definitely didn't think of the act of attending college itself as anything particularly noteworthy. Yeah, I didn't have the historical perspective to know how rare it was for a woman to attend college in the 19th century. So I kind of want to backtrack and think about the timeline of the book series. We're never given exact years, but we know that the Cuthberts adopted Anne in the late 1870s. Assuming that Anne was adopted as late as 1879 at age 11, by the time Anne matriculates at Redmond at age 18, it's probably about 1887, right? So now here's the historical context for you. Dalhousie University, which is the school that the fictional Redmond is sort of loosely based on, Dalhousie awarded its first Bachelor of Arts degree to a woman in 1885. That first female graduate was Margaret Florence Newcomb from Grafton, Nova Scotia. That's amazing. If we line this up with Dalhousie, 
Anne is starting college in the first couple of classes to have women attending at all. Yeah. That's amazing. Right. And Philippa, Priscilla, and Stella are coming in pretty hot on the heels of higher education, even being available to women, especially in the Eastern Maritimes of Canada. So for all the ways that Anne's experience as a student feels to us, like reminiscent of our own, you know, cozy days in the dorm, studying with our friends close by, we need to kind of keep in mind how remarkable Anne and her friends really are for their time. And in fact, the 19th century was the earliest point in modern Western history when higher education was even available for women. For centuries, that was a privilege reserved only for men. Since women were historically not allowed to be doctors, priests, or lawyers, which were traditionally the trades that required that level of education, they were not permitted to attend the universities educating young men for those professions. In contrast, the acceptable career paths for women were domestic or cloistered, so housekeepers, domestic servants, nuns, so women were educated at home, often by their mothers or in wealthier families by tutors. The rare woman who did seek higher education faced intense scrutiny and persecution, such as Elena Lucrezia Cornaro Piscopia, who in 1672 enrolled at the University of Padua to study theology. Although Piscopia's intellect impressed her professors and fellow scholars, ultimately the Catholic Church intervened and barred her graduation. Could you imagine? The Catholic Church intervened. Oh my God. (laughs) <laughs> the university did ultimately issue Piscopia a degree as a teacher and a doctor in philosophy, but not without a fight. And then they did not award a degree to another woman for three more centuries. Outrageous. I know. But, you know, meanwhile, philosophers and activists were working to turn the tides. In 1694, the English philosopher Mary Astle anonymously published a pamphlet entitled A Serious Proposal to the Ladies for the Advancement of Their True and Greatest Interest. And three years later, she published A Serious Proposal Part Two, which outlined her plan to establish a new type of institution for women to assist in providing women with both religious and secular education. She argued that women's career options should extend beyond mother or nun. Well, Ms. Astle, I would like to subscribe to your pamphlets. (laughs) Same. Thank you, Miss Astle, for, you know, getting the ball rolling here. And ultimately, it was not until the 1800s when Astle's proposal began to be realized. Women's colleges started opening. In the United States, Mount Holyoke College opened in Massachusetts in 1837 and Wesleyan College opened in Georgia in 1839. In England, Whitelands College opened in 1841. English people, if that's actually pronounced like Whitlands College or something, please correct us. (laughs) (laughs) And in Canada, Mount St. Vincent University opened in 1875, and numerous other institutions of higher education for women were also founded right around that time in the middle of the 19th century, including, of course, my own alma mater, Mills College, which was founded in 1852 as the first women's college west of the Rockies. Shout out to Mills! (laughs) And even as these women-only colleges were coming into being... Some colleges that had previously only admitted men also began to admit women. Oberlin College is thought to be the first coeducational college in the United States, and they admitted four women in 1837. And then the first Canadian institution of higher education to accept female students was Mount Allison University, located in New Brunswick in 1872. Mount Allison was also the first college in the British Empire to award a bachelor's degree to a woman, Gracie Annie Lockhart, who graduated with a Bachelor of Science in 1875. Across Canada, women were making their way, albeit slowly, 
into higher education throughout the 1870s and 1880s, aided in part by prominent educators, including Edgerton Ryerson, chief superintendents of schools in Upper Canada, and the minister of education in Upper Canada, George Ross. The two of them, I guess, participated in lively debates about whether or not to adopt co-education in universities. And because it was kind of a hot topic, they started seeing it a lot more at that time. And I really think that this historical context is so critical to understanding how remarkable it was that Anne and her friends should be attending college at all. There were few such opportunities available to women, and educating women beyond a secondary school level was unusual and seen by many as unnecessary, including by characters in this book. Mm-hmm. There's this great scene I love in the girls' junior year. Philippo tells Aunt Jimsy that she intends to go for a competitive scholarship in mathematics and explains that she could easily win the scholarship in Greek, but would rather win the math one because it would prove her intelligence to Jonas, her beau. I mean, this is one of many ways that we know for all her silliness, Phil is incredibly intelligent. I mean, she could get that Greek scholarship, but she's going to really push herself and go for the math one. I mean, (laughs) you know, she's not going to be so greedy as to try and take two. Right. No, no, no. (laughs) And imagine, right, that even a few years earlier, someone as bright as Phil would not have even been able to attend college just because she's a girl. So Aunt Jimsy is a little perplexed by Phil's pronouncement. When I was a girl, it wasn't considered ladylike to know anything about mathematics, said Aunt Jamesina. But times have changed. I don't know that it's all for the better. Can you cook, Phil? She, again, (laughs) getting right to the point. (laughs) And Phil replies, no, I never cooked anything in my life except a gingerbread. And it was a failure. Flat in the middle and hilly round the edges. You know the kind. But, Auntie, when I begin in good earnest to learn to cook, Don't you think the brains that enable me to win a mathematical scholarship will also enable me to learn cooking just as well? Maybe, said Aunt James (laughs) Dina cautiously. I know. (laughs) I am not decrying the higher education of women. My daughter is an MA. She can cook too, but I taught her to cook before I let a college professor teach her mathematics. So Priorities, priorities. Yeah, exactly. Priorities. So you see, even among the girls' most faithful champions, there's this mistrust of higher education for women and the thought that it's almost wasteful because most of the work of a woman's life would be keeping house and raising children. This was really interesting, Kelly. And I'm especially glad that you called out the names of all of these pioneering women graduates because it's so easy for their names just to get lost in time. And Mm. I'm imagine imagine what it would have been like to be that first woman to matriculate at Mount Allison University or Oberlin College with all other men in your classes. Yeah, I'm excited that we got a little moment here to celebrate them. Yes. Thank you, ladies. Well, turning now to some puffed sleeve moments, some little funny extra moments that we don't need in this episode, but we want. Kelly. We can't help. Can't help but including because they're just so sweet. We can't. We can't help it. Kelly, what do you have? Well, okay. So I think the scene where Anne and Stella are revisiting Anne's old story club tales is so wonderfully funny. They're just sitting there, you know, all the old pages sort of strewn about making fun of the outlandish outfits that they came up with and how everyone was always dying. And so Anne explains to Stella, quote, well, here's my masterpiece. Note its cheerful title, My Graves. And also, listeners, note that there's an outdated ableist word in this quote, so brief content warning. But back to Anne. I shed quarts of tears while writing it, and the other girls shed gallons while I read it. 
Jane Andrews' mother scolded her frightfully because she had so many handkerchiefs in the wash that week. It's a harrowing tale of the wanderings of a Methodist minister's wife. I made her a Methodist because it was necessary that she should wander. (laughs) She buried a child every place she lived in. There were nine of them and their graves were severed far apart, ranging from Newfoundland to Vancouver. I described the children, pictured their several deathbeds, and detailed their tombstones and epitaphs. I had intended to bury the whole nine, but when I had last disposed of eight, my invention of horrors gave out, and I permitted the last to live as a hopeless cripple. (laughs) Man. Oh, my graves! My graves! (laughs) graves ranging from newfoundland to vancouver (laughs) i love that Anne ran out of ways to kill them (laughs) and also there's something about her being a methodist i don't i don't quite understand that but it's still i don't know i i don't know enough about the differences in philosophy between methodists and presbyterians at this point in time but but yeah she thought of everything you know, and it's it's such a delicious moment. It's not just a funny story, but it also does help inspire Anne to continue her creative writing efforts, right? Because when she can see how much she's improved since Story Club, she knows she can keep getting better. Right. So we got to growth mindset eventually. Eventually. Well, my puffed sleeves moment is a comic one from the beginning of the book. Anne is prepping to leave for Redmond and has a day in which all the ladies of the community have popped by to say goodbye to Anne, and they have left her doubting the goodness of her decision to go to college. The quote says, Mrs. Peter Sloan sighed and said she hoped my strength would hold out till I got through, and at once I saw myself a hopeless victim of nervous prostration at the end of my third year. Mrs. Eben Wright said it must cost an awful lot to put in four years at Redmond, and I felt all over me it was unpardonable in me to squander Marilla's money and my own on such a folly. Mrs. Jasper Bell said she hoped I wouldn't let college spoil me as it did some people. And I felt in my bones that the end of my four Redmond years would see me a most insufferable creature, thinking I knew it all and looking down on everything and everybody in Avonlea. Mrs. Alicia Wright said she understood that Redmond girls, especially those who belonged to Kingsport, were dreadful dressy and stuck up. And she guessed I wouldn't feel much at home among them. And I saw myself a snub, dowdy, humiliated country girl shuffling through Redmond. Redmond's classic halls and copper-toned boots. Oh, Anne. <laughs> Anne's feeling rather downhearted about these comments, which were all well-meant, not passive-aggressive jab. Well, again, but- showing the skepticism for, you know, leaving your town, pursuing higher education, especially as a woman. Absolutely. Gilbert at least reminds her, you are the first Avonlea girl who has ever gone to college, and you know that all pioneers are considered to be afflicted with moonstruck madness. Mm, Gilbert, again, just perfect perspective, perfect reframe. Exactly. I like this reminder that just as you had talked about, Anne is doing something very remarkable in going to college. All right, Reagan, winding us down today, I'm going to move into our Inspired by Anne recommendations. Today, I'm inspired by all of Anne's correspondence while she's away at college. It's really one of the most fun parts of this book. She's always getting a funny letter from Davy or a gossipy missive from Mrs. Lind or a breezy note from Phil about all their goings on. I adore the lost art of letter writing. And to encourage myself to do more of it, I have a couple favorite stationers that I think the kindred spirits would also love. My first recommendation is uh, a company called Felix Doolittle. And that's a New England-based stationery company that creates absolutely 
gorgeous paper products. Each one is adorned with a whimsical illustration. I love their note cards and their book plates especially, but they have all kinds of paper goods, like everything from party invitations to labels for homemade treats. The art on these Felix Doolittle designs reminds me of those like on plain air watercolors. So very much inspired by nature with a really colorful sense of humor. So a few of my favorite designs are a small red fox overlooking a rolling green meadow or a bear curled up in an armchair with a good book or just a beautiful bouquet of wildflowers. It's very East Coast Cape Cod kind of inspired and I'm sure Anne would love to write her letters on beautiful pages like these. I was looking through their website for Anne inspiration and I decided that she would choose the old oak tree motif with beautiful branches stretching across the top of the page. Love it. I love some good stationery. And then another one I also love is called Open Sea Design Company, and that's a Brooklyn-based stationery. And they have a Victorian natural philosopher type bent. Think vintage nature illustrations. So if you love that sort of dark academia aesthetics, you will absolutely adore their oval-shaped note cards and tarot-inspired notebooks. Their designs are really dark and ornate, and they just make my little goth heart very happy. I could absolutely see Anne sending Paul Irving a letter inquiring about the rock people on their seashells and pearls note cards. That is such a great inspiration, Kelly. And you know, that makes me nostalgic for the letters I wrote and received in college myself. Right? Remember when we wrote letters, Reagan? Remember? It was not that long ago. It was not that long ago. I know we're old, but we did used to write letters. (laughs) I actually have a little trunk of them still, has survived several moves, obviously, by this point in my life. And I'm really glad I've saved so many. And I do occasionally look back on them and get a little jolt of wistfulness and nostalgia. And I had several friends who were very funny writers. They were very good letter writers. The best. So I've definitely fallen out of the habit of writing letters, but maybe these stationary companies will inspire me. Well, Reagan, if we're ever living far apart, we need to like take up a really impressive letter writing correspondence, clearly. Yeah. I mean, we could do that now. It's not like, (laughs) I mean, by LA standards, we live rather far apart. (laughs) Yeah, there's nothing stopping us doing it now. I know. Anyway, so this week I am inspired by graduations. So I am going to share with you the graduation gift I got for my daughter for her fifth grade graduation, which I know is not the same thing as college, but It's still pretty great. Congratulations, Alice. So uh, the jewelry company Brian Anthony's has a lot of very like inspirational style jewelry, which isn't always my thing. But they do have these matching signet rings that have a Big Dipper and a Little Dipper constellation on them. So one ring is the Big Dipper and one ring is the Little Dipper. Oh, that's so cute. In little little diamond-y stones. They're not real diamonds. (laughs) And I think they are meant as a big sister, little sister set, but I bought them for Alice and I as a graduation gift for her. And and right now, as I was writing this and adding the link on our recording date, they are on ridiculous sale. I mean, they're not super expensive anyway. They're originally like $30 each. And I bought these for Alice and I way back in January when they had like a post-Christmas sale. But now they are $10 each. Yeah. And they're really, really cute. You guys, I'm looking at them right now. Two little signet rings with the two different dippers. Oh, adorable. And because I didn't want to get her a really expensive piece of jewelry. She's still only 10, but they're Mm -hmm. honestly quite good quality. I don't feel like I'm wearing a cheap ring when I'm wearing it. It's a step up from, you know, Claire accessories rings that turn your finger green. 
for her. So yeah, they're very cute, but they're so sweet and they have them in silver or in 14 karat gold. And I just kind of love the symbolism. So if you have a young graduate in your life, these are really nice mother-daughter gifts or sister gifts or friend gifts. And if you hurry up and buy them when this episode comes out, you can 10 bucks, man. Yeah, that's great. Those are really cute, Reagan. Listeners, we are linking all of our recommendations in the show notes. So if you want to know where to find beautiful stationery or adorable matching mother-daughter rings, we will hook you up. Thank you so much for joining us, Kindred Spirits. Next time, we will be delving into the romance in Anna the Island, and we hope you'll tune in for what is sure to be a very fun episode. In the meanwhile, come find us on Instagram at kindredspirits.bookclub, where we would love to hear all your theories about the true plot of Avril's atonement. Seriously, just DM us. If you share something that's funny, we'll share it in our stories. We would very much appreciate it if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so your fellow kindred spirits can find us. Thank you. Bye, kindred spirits. 